Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we discussed the original Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov. This is a special episode where we have a special guest, Joel, from the Selden Crisis podcast on. Um, my name is Dan, and I have now read the entire series, and I read Front Nation's Edge um, after the series. I was so interested to, uh, to read it that I continued. Happy to be here. Yeah, welcome, Joel. Uh, we really like your podcast, The Selden Crisis. I'm excited to have you here on Rehydrate. Uh, my name is Talia. I have now read all of the Foundation Trilogy and have experienced a few of Isaac Asimov's short stories and um, a few of his novels since I picked up an anthology, and that's usually where his science fiction is all strung together. My name is Priya, and I have read uh, the entire trilogy now, and I've also watched uh, the entire first season of the show. And the only other book I've read by Isaac Asimov is I, Robot. And uh, it's lovely to have you on the show, Joel. Yeah, uh, it's great to be here. I, I've really enjoyed your podcast. I've listened to, oh, I don't know, four or five of them, of the episodes, and um, I love the analysis you do and you guys get really deep into it. So, um, um, it's a little different than mine. I, you get a lot deeper into a lot of the analysis than I do. I, I just have fun telling the stories, but I, um, have been a big fan of Asimov since I was a teenager. Uh, you know, I grew up with the big three, Asimov, Clark and Heinlein and Asimov was always my first and, you know, my most dear of the three of them. And I just, uh, I, I did uh, I read Foundation as a kid, and I just got back to it during the pandemic uh, in the summer of 2020. I read uh, the the two sequels and two prequels, and when I was done with it, I just like couldn't let go. It was like so much in my in me. I turned my son onto it and had him read all seven of them. He loved them, so that was great. We talked about it for a while, and then I thought, no, I want to talk to more people about this. So why don't I do a podcast? So that's how it started. Well, the format for this show is going to be a little bit different than we've tried before. I've heard a lot of podcasts I've done draft style, so I thought there'd be a good experiment for us to try. So what I proposed and everyone agreed to <laughs> uh, was we do a draft of Isomoff quotes from Foundation. And so the the premise is that we just kind of go through the books uh, and the first three books. Um, I know some of us have read other ones, um, but from the first three books to kind of just pick out quotes or sections that we really like. And we'll kind of talk about them a little bit about why we like them and then just read the quotes. Um, so it's going to be a snake order draft, meaning the first person, uh, the first pick for the first round goes last the uh, second round. Um, so the order that we're going to go in is Joel's going to go first followed by Talia, then Priya, and then me. And then so for the second round, it'll be me, and then Priya, and then Talia, and then Joel. And we're going to do three rounds. So let's start, and let's go with Joel's first quote. Okay, uh, so this goes back to the first novel and the last chapter in it, The Merchant Princes. And uh, this is about halfway through that story. It's a pretty long story, as you might recall. Uh, but about halfway through the story, after Mallow had arrived on Corel and he had met the, the Commodore, uh, there is a, a scene where he goes into a factory and shows off a bunch of the Foundation's nifty gadgets. You know, they cut things and, you know, impress the, 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 uh, the Commodore and all the people there. And, you know, it's basically... Mallow just standing up giving this big sales demo. 
And right near the end of it, there's a a really interesting quote that I'm going to read off right now. The Commodore's own bodyguards in the confusion had struggled to the front line and Mallow, for the first time, was near enough to see their unfamiliar hand weapons in detail. They were nuclear. There was no mistaking it. An explosive projectile weapon with a barrel like that was impossible. But that wasn't the big point. That wasn't the point at all. The butts of those weapons had deeply etched upon them in worn gold plating the spaceship and sun. The same spaceship and sun that was stamped on every one of the great volumes of the original encyclopedia that the Foundation had begun and not yet finished. The same spaceship and sun that had blazoned the banner of the Galactic Empire through millennia. This really resonated with me because one of the main things that I think entranced me about this story from the very beginning from the beginning with Selden's predictions and the whole setting of it was just the awe-inspiring scope in space and time that this was so far in the future and 30,000 years is just an amazing amount of time to consider in the first place and it involved the entire galaxy and this kind of emblem this is emblematic of that because there's the time that's passed since they've last heard of the foundation have last interacted with the foundation and you have this the distance to the center of the galaxy and it's all represented in this sudden re- revelation that things have kind of come full circle again and the, there is the empire it's still there that's why i liked it yeah for sure i love the the scope and the like you said the history like the the time expansion, right? Like they, they go into that for like the the even ser- like the whole series, and like they talk about like historical stuff that's like the future for us, right? Like the the like the fall of the of the empire and, and the other kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I love the just the scope of of the series and the everything about the universe. It just yeah, it drew me into into when I first read it. Yeah. Okay, let's go with the number two pick with Talia. Mm, thank you. Very difficult to follow you, Joel. Um, <laughs> as Barr says to Mallow, although I know it's out of fashion in these decaying times to be a scholar, nevertheless, the intrepid hosts of Rehydrate have gathered some quotes for our intellectual nourishment. So I approached my first quote by focusing on a character that I really enjoyed, and that would be the psychologist of Ebling Miss, who in his final days when he's being impelled to work to himself to death or exhaust his mental faculties or however you view the prism of his last moments and there's this arrogance to his pronouncement when he's speaking about how problems are absent and everything flows through him and the revelation of the twist that this is not his own you know sheer brilliance but in fact he's being controlled and working on behalf you know working for a force outside of himself that's a twist, but I think it's hidden really well because it does suit the personality of Edling Miss that we've grown to know. So I chose the opening lines from The Psychologist, his introduction, chapter 15. If you're following along at home, that's in Foundation and Empire in the second section, The Mule. There was reason to the fact that the element known as pure science is the freest form of life on the foundation. In a galaxy where the predominance and even survival of the foundation still rested upon the superiority of its technology, even despite its large access of physical power in the last century and a half, a certain immunity adhered to 
the scientist. He was needed and he knew it. Likewise, there was reason to the fact that Ebling Miss, only those who did not know him added his titles to his name, was the freest form of life in the pure science of the foundation. In a world where science was respected, he was the scientist with capital letters and no smile. He was needed and he knew it. So I really liked obviously the whole arc of Evelyn Miss. And I know that Asimov in his later years outside of the foundation series has written about the strain of anti-intellectualism. And I believe Dan brought it up as a reflection of a trend that he sees in America, but the tension between our political life and our cultural life and scientific life um, between ignorance and knowledge and technology and its absence is, I think, really one of the best themes in the foundation. So that's why I chose this. What would Isaac think now if he was still around? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't be good. <laughs> it's only degenerated <laughs> since, since his time, right? Yeah. It, it reminds me also of... Um, there's another quote later on. I don't remember the exact quote when Arcadia is talking to Kalia about uh, Homer, uh, about like his job, how she, how he's a librarian, and she's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, he's so important. He's like, he's only a librarian." And Arcadia's like, "Librarian's like the most important job that you can have <laughs> in our society." Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's 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 it's, it's interesting how, like how Isomov like elevates like these uh, these more professional kind of roles into like high important roles. Yeah, we need more heroes like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and and even Arcadia is like a writer, and like she's a, she's a hero of the story. So like all the people who have like the highest intelligence seem to rise to the top in these stories, and that's how it should be. But it's not actually actually is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, now with the number three pick, Priya. So the quote that I um, am going to start off with is the quote that um, Chanis, upon encountering the people of Rossum, says um, regarding uh, the nature of their uh, feelings around uh, punishment. So he says, don't you see that the whole orientation of their domination is different? It is not physical, but psychological. They speak of punishment, only of others. It is as if knowledge of punishment has been so well implanted in them that punishment itself never need never be used. The proper mental attitudes are so inserted into their minds that I am certain that not a Tazendian soldier exists on the planet. Don't you see all this? So I've been thinking of, about this a lot in recent times, and um, this ties back directly to what Joel was saying just a mo- moment ago about what would um, Asimov think of of you know what's happening right now and um i've been thinking of this specifically um in light of the the war happening between russia and ukraine and how the world has been sort of holding its breath because we're all terrified of nukes obviously so i've always had this like really really deep fear of um nuclear warfare and i think nuclear warfare is this knowledge of punishment that looms over us like the ultimate punishment right and it it always has terrified me ever since i was you know um in my early 20s i read a canticle for Leibowitz and um which predicts you know nuclear annihilation and i've always thought like you know this is the all sci-fi that predicts our end in nuclear warfare seems the most like plausible to me all the time like ai taking over doesn't get me the way that like nukes do so um 
I, I always thought like the invention of nukes is probably the worst thing that happened throughout our history. And um, recently I was listening to an interview with um, Yuval Noah Harari, which I'm sure all of you know. Um, oh, yeah. And he mentioned that up until now, the nukes have actually fulfilled the function of preventing countless wars that would actually have happened if it weren't for the threat of nuclear warfare. And um, I think I had never really stopped to consider all the wars that haven't happened because of them um, and sort of just fixated on this deep fear that they are going to be our end. And um, so so I, I think that this uh, this description of the psychology of the people of Rossum sort of really applies on a macro level to like the state of all of humanity in a sense in a world where we are so advanced that we have this threat of you know world annihilation <laughs> looming over our heads that that threat need actually never be used to actually prevent to keep us in check you know and right now is a very difficult time because that all seems to kind of be crumbling um that notion so I mean, I'll, 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 I'll stop with the doom and gloom, but that, that's why that's one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I just want to say I have felt much the same um, and have, I didn't, I, I actually have never read Canticle for Leibowitz and I know it's a crime I have to solve. I was terrified of nukes as when I was, as soon as I grew up and realized this insane doctrine this uh, mad you know mutually assured destruction and was you know terrified that this just wasn't going to work and it's amazing that it has worked this long but i really don't think much about that uh aspect of what we've saved by doing that than what wars there would have been uh all i think about is how incredibly stupid it would be to to lose it all uh, in nuclear annihilation. It just feels like the dumbest utopia or dystopia that possible. AI yeah. seems like we could accept, you know, that being a difficult problem to solve and something we shouldn't have expected. But when you have a doctrine that's just, if you annihilate us, we're going to annihilate you and all humanity will be gone. That just seems like... A really dumb approach. Hope it never comes to that. So since this podcast originally started out as a Remembrance of Earth Past podcast, I would be remiss in saying that I would recommend you read that series if you haven't. This, the, it's also known okay. as the Three Body Problem series because there is a, a a big theme of mutually assured destruction there that kind of follows mm. along with that. So if, It's and, definitely on my in, list. And yeah. a lot of it is because of how much I've heard you guys talking about it. We, we yeah. talked about it a lot. <laughs> I mean, you can't help but tie it into like literally everything. And I think that uh, Lucy Shin was definitely very much inspired by Asimov um, in writing the series. So Certainly. lots of lots of themes come up there. Okay. Well, now it's my turn with the number four pick for the first round. So I kind of cheated and took a conversation that kind of spans a... Uh, the chap a chapter, but kind of picked out little parts of it, and it's my favorite part of the whole series, which is the the interaction between the mule and Chanis. I just love their interplay between each other, and like like they're antagonizing each other, and like they Chanis knows that like you know, he has the leg up, and the mule know he has the leg up. And I, just, I just love it. So I, I picked out a couple quotes. There's a couple breaks in between them. 
the chant starts out with like saying, so he created his foundations according to the laws of psychohistory, but who knew better that, than he that even those laws were relative? He could never created a finished product. Finished products are for decadent minds. His was an evolving mechanism, and the second foundation was the instrument of that evolution. We, for a citizen of your temporary union of worlds, we are the guardians of Selden's plan. Only we. And later on, the mule, when he has the advantage, says, He felt the walls behind him, and the mule faced him, skinny arms akimbo, lips smiling terribly beneath that mountain of a nose. The mule said, Your game is through, Chanis. The game. All of you. All of the men of what used to be the second foundation. Used to be. Used to be. And finally, the mule says, my ships are launched against Tazenda 12 hours ago, and they are quite, quite through with their mission. Tazenda is laid in ruins. Its centers of populations are wiped out. There was no resistance. The second foundation no longer exists, Chanis. And I, the queer, ugly weakling, am ruler of the galaxy. So I, I've listened to this, read and listened to this chapter like multiple, multiple times. I just love like the interplay between uh, like the the back and forth of like Pritchard and Chanis and then Chanis and the mule and then the mule and the the first speaker. Uh, I just love it. Um, and especially like how they just antagonize each other here. Especially like the 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 quote that I wanted to bring this whole thing up with was, was when uh, when Chanis says, uh, we for a citizen of your temporary unions of worlds. I just, I just love that quote. Yeah, it's, it's an awesome section. Uh, it's funny, the first time I read um, through foundation, I I felt like uh, no the second time I should say in 2020 when I read it I felt that that whole section didn't like hit me that as something something felt off about it 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 just didn't work for me and but then there's doing the podcast I have to do what I call close reading you know where mm. I read every line and have to understand everything that's going on you know I can't I tend to read too fast. Yeah, know, and yeah, skip same. over things and miss stuff. Uh, and that's been the most wonderful thing about doing the podcast is that that close reading just makes me feel like I'm really understanding what Asimov is thinking and why he's doing everything. And that section just came alive. And that, that whole interplay was just brilliant. And I loved it. Yeah, I think the fact that it all happens in like a single room and like that room, you just, yeah. you can see it in your mind. They, they talk about the light, just like the single light strand being in, in the Rossum fashion, just sitting there and like they're in this cold room, the mules all bundled up in his coat because it's like a super cold planet. And they're just like battling it out, you know, with the, with their minds. I, I talk about this on Selden Crisis, but there's uh, yeah. the plot structure has this constriction, you know, everything gets yeah. compressed down into this one room and just three people, you know, for, yeah. for most of it, and then, then a fourth, but it's, um, it, it just ramps up the, the tension so powerfully and yeah, it's just brilliantly done. Okay. Well now we're moving on to round two. And like I said before, we're using snake case drafting. So I get the first pick of the second round and looking over all the quotes that I picked, they're all, <laughs> they're all in sort of the same vein. They're antagon two people antagonizing each other. <laughs> um, so the second one I'm going to pick is from Second Foundation. It's from the beginning of the second part with, with Arcadia. And specifically when um, Anthor is at her window and um, Arcadia is, you know, you're introduced to her and like her character and like it's, it's such a great introduction to like what her character is and how confident she is. And so 
the scene is that Anthor is at her window and uh, Arcadia says, if you jump off, young man, I will personally give the alarm. This was intended as a refined and sophisticated thrust of irony. Since our two Arcadia's enlightened eyes, the intruder was obviously a mature, 30 at least, quite elderly, in fact. <laughs> the man's eyes were wide with chagrin. That was a bluff? How dare you, kid? I consider that a very impertinent question, young man, and I am not accustomed to being addressed as kid. I don't wonder. You're probably the mule's grandmother in disguise. Do you mind if I leave now before you arrange our lynching party with myself as a star performer? So, yeah, I guess I just like the parts of the, the series when people are against each other or, like, you know, antagonizing each other. And, and like I said, like, I really like the introduction of Arcadia here as, like, sort of the, the new heroine of the, of, you know, and the main, the main like, character of, of the book. And it's just, like, a refreshing change of perspective from what we've seen, um, uh, you know, throughout the rest of the series, like, with just different, different perspectives with, uh, you know, 14-year-old uh, high school girl, basically, um, who is the, you know, the confident, um, heroine of the story. I love the bluff about the baseball bat too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joyce Dan. I also really like this exchange when she like has him still dangling out the window and she's like, Oh, watch out. You're going to like fall and break your neck and the precious rose bushes. And the right. she's like, I would have arranged those adjectives differently. <laughs> so, she's punchy and confident and uh, really well chosen. I love that interaction. Yeah, I'm really glad you picked that, Dan, because, um, I mean, you know, after fo to follow like the doom and gloom mood that I set <laughs> up, <laughs> I love I, I've spoken often of how much I love Arcady's, um sassiness and she comes right out with it um, when we're first introduced to her. So um, it's just it was it was very refreshing to me to see a care a female character presented that way after you know uh, you know all my gripes um of the female characters presented prior besides beta so um so yeah it was it was nice to see someone quippy like that does your um quote have similar quippiness Priya? alas no <laughs> <laughs> But it is on a different theme. We're moving right along from um, nuclear annihilation to something oh. <laughs> something very different. This is more of almost like a philosophical thing to me. Um, you know, my, my background is as a once, once upon a time, I was an English major. And so I love language and I love the fact that we are the only um, animal that can communicate this way in the way that we do and where, you know, our, our, our language is in itself uh, a form of art. So this quote from Second Foundation um, is it, it, it's always very compelling to me, but very weird because I can't wrap my brain around it. Um, so uh, the quote is speech originally was the device whereby man learned imperfectly to transmit the thoughts and emotions of his mind by setting up arbitrary sounds and combinations of sounds to represent certain mental nuances he developed a method of communication but one which in its clumsiness and thick-thumbed inadequacy degenerated all the delicacy of the mind into gross and guttural signaling so this is very compelling because um i've never thought of speech as an inadequacy um speech always stands out to me as a human superpower um 
But uh, assuming the communication without speech were possible, I can see where this notion would arise from. It's almost like we're not evolved enough. And that's why speech is our best bet at communicating our thoughts and the complexities of our mind. But imagine if like, you didn't even have to put the complexities of your mind through a medium like speech and you could just convey it all just like, you know, in its raw form, which is a really nice idea. But like in the real world, I, I, I feel like it's, it's a thing that makes humans as unique as we are. So oh, the real world. Yeah. The real world. Unlike the fake world of mm-hmm. Asimov. <laughs> but who knows? I don't Maybe know. One day. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is, definitely not the first time I've brought this up, the parallels that I see between uh, like Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, the Tao Te Ching and mm. foundation. But uh, to me, this just always comes through very strongly. Like every single Chinese student would be able to finish the phrase like Dao Ke Dao, Fei Chang Dao, Ming Ke Ming, Fei Chang Ming. Like the, the famous line of the Tao Te Ching uh, roughly translates to like the path that can be discussed is not the transcendent path. Like the name that can be named is not the eternal name. Like just by trying to force it into speech patterns or human minds, we ultimately are diminishing it. And I think that I never need to understand some of those prisms. Yeah. Second foundation as Taoists. That is so cool. That is, that's amazing. And and there is also something that we talk about in um, literature and um, literary analysis is um, whenever you refer to something as the sublime, it's something that's ineffable. You cannot put it into words. So there is also that. So I can see, I can see this um, idea as being like this beautiful idea where like, yes, we have speech and we can create all kinds of prose and beautiful, you know, works of art with it. But then there are still some things that are so transcendent, they are the mm-hmm. sublime and you cannot put them in words. So that that is it is a very beautiful idea, albeit, albeit very weird. <laughs> what I think is really interesting, there's an irony with it because we tend to like worship our ability to speak and write uh-huh. and communicate with words and almost arrogantly as like, this is, we are the only species that can do this. So therefore this must be a great thing that we have developed and we don't think of the downside and you know why we're so miserable all the time because we don't, we're not like dolphins just leaping through the water, enjoying life. You know, we're, uh, or, or dogs running through the field, you know, um, uh, smelling things it's almost like this is like a a a mental degeneration disguised as this great progress or something you know the way he describes it so it's a really interesting Mm. thing well i'm glad that priya chose a different theme because i think it leads into my quote and i believe if i understand this snake quote draft (laughs) i'm up next you are next okay well just as a snake curls back on itself uh i chose Uh, a quote where we're seeing echoes of the past in our characters and in our themes. And even a quote that Priya begged us not to use is going to rear its head. So this is, again, I guess it's a little bit of what Dan brought up as well. There's conflict between two characters, between Seth Cermak and Salvar Hardin. And this is when, I think we've discussed this most in episode two, The Mayors and the Traitors, when they are strengthening Anacreon and they have this policy of giving them medical facilities and nuclear power and even fixing their dilapidated ships. 
and this obviously causes Cermak to bristle uh, because he is more for isolationism and uh, strength and tells Harden he's been playing the fool in a colossal game of blackmail. And the two of them acknowledge like the ghost in the room between them because this is several centuries in the future, but Selden's doctrine, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent, is not only present in their minds, it's actually on a plaque in the wall. And so it's in the minds of the foundation and Hardin is still affected by it. But his statement and the quote that I chose was, the temptation was great to muster what force we could and put up a fight. It's the easiest way out and the most satisfactory to self-respect, but nearly invariably the stupidest. So whatever you think of the original Selden plan for building an encyclopedia at the end of the galaxy, everything that Selden has done is and said is still very sticky uh, throughout these centuries. Even though his predictions are usually about forgetting and rebuilding, there's still this presence in the specter of history that looms over all of these conversations that are happening. So I liked when these characters were in conflict, but they're still united by uh, by Harry Seldon. They can't seem to get away from it. Yeah, I love, I love that quote too. It's a great one. I'm going to start with a dialogue actually between Belriose and Dusan Bar that happens near the end of the first half of the general when he is, Belriose is wrestling with this idea of uh what the foundation stands for and what the Selden plan is all about and just really trying to grapple with how he, how this, the foundation can be so idiotic basically. Uh, and he says, you mean that this art of his predicts that I would attack the foundation and lose such and such a battle for such and such a reason. You are trying to say that I am a silly robot following a predetermined course into destruction. no, I have already said that the science had nothing to do with individual actions. It is the vaster background that has been foreseen. Then we stand clasped tightly in the forcing hand of the goddess of historical necessity, of psychohistorical necessity. And if I exercise my prerogative of free will, if I choose to attack next year or not to attack at all, how pliable is the goddess? How resourceful. Attack now or never with a single ship or all the force in the empire, by military force or economic pressure, by candid declaration of war or by treacherous ambush. Do whatever you wish in your fullest exercise of free will. You will still lose. Because of Hari Seldon's dead hand, because of the dead hand of the mathematics of human behavior, that can neither be stopped, swerved, nor delayed. Riose pauses for a moment, staring into the implacable face of the old patrician, then announces his course. I'll take that challenge. It's a dead hand against a living will. Well, obviously, I found this really fascinating because I think it's a central theme of the whole series is that this dichotomy between psychohistory and and free will uh, you know that the whole idea of Selden's plan is that individuals don't matter that it's uh, you know that it's all just predetermined basically that you know based on 
the, how things are moving sociologically with large groups of people. And Briose just has a big problem with that because he thinks he's hot stuff and he can, he's the great man of history. So this, this uh, refers to a, a theory called the great man of history, uh, the, you know, the great man theory of history uh, that came out in the late 19th century, a guy named Carlisle wrote about. And it's kind of uh, an assumption that has been kind of accepted in, you know, to this day by most people uh, that were it not for people like Gandhi, Napoleon, Caesar, you know, all these major figures, uh, we'd have a very different world. And a classic example of this is when in time travel, you know, that they talk about, you know, going back and killing Hitler as a baby and, you know, saving the Holocaust from happening. And according to the sociological side of it, it would still happen that way. It would just be a different Hitler. You know, there'd be some other face, the face of a movement, right? And that these individuals are not that important. And I think it's really interesting if you think, like taking it back to what we talked about earlier with the Ukraine war, uh, there's a, a lot of people say, well, Putin is the problem. If we got rid of Putin, you know, everything would be rosy. And if this is true, then that's not the case. You know, the, the problem with Putin is the problem of a sociological phenomenon in Russia, a kind of like the what happened in the Weimar Republic after World War I in Germany. And you know, the people were aggrieved and looking, you know, they felt that their sense of the great German, you know, you know, uh, that our, our destiny is to, to be strong and powerful. And here we are miserable and weak and pathetic and something needs to be done about that. And even if it's something desperate, like, you know, putting ourselves behind this madman. And I think a very similar pattern is happening in Russia right now. And I have some insight into it because my wife is Russian. So it's been a very uh, powerful time for us to talk about this. And she's pretty seriously affected by it. I think like on top of that, like going back to the the part of like the foundation aspect of it, uh, it, it to me, like what made this the like going back and like looking at the story after reading this series even more interesting is the fact that like the second foundation is controlling all this stuff. It's not like a dead hand. It's a living thing that the second foundation is always controlling and always like adjusting to, to fit into the plan. Um, so, you know, the, the quote with like Dusan Bar, Dusan Bar sees it as like this grant, like almost like godlike, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, this plan has, is going to continue no matter what you do, but that's only because the foundations out there, you know, adjusting people's minds and, you know, controlling the situation to fit into their plan. But I think there was a pivotal moment uh, in the whole development of the plot of, of foundation right at the end of the general, you know, where it's, it, it worked the way Dusenbar talked about up until that point. And that's when the mule started with the mule entered the picture and the second foundation entered the picture. Yeah. We really don't know when the second foundation really entered the picture and getting back to something I talked about before we started, which is it's, it's a shame that Asimov died prematurely when he did because uh, he had, um, there are rumors that he had planned to write 
something about the second foundation that follows in time with uh, the second prequel. So basically contemporaneous with the story as it develops in, you know, the psychohistorians and encyclopedists. So the Mm -hmm. idea would be that the second foundation was active during those times or developing some activity and we don't know uh, how much involved, how involved they were. Yeah. I guess like in my headcanon of the series, like they've been, they were active ever since the time, like the, ever since the time that they're established, right? Like we just, we didn't know about them in the, in the first book or the first book and the first part of foundation and empire, but they were there. Like that was my, that's my assumption anyway, that they're, they're always continue. Cause like they talked about like when they see the prime radiant and they have like that red line going across like the entire plan. So like that was my assumption that they were always adjusting the plan, you know, from the very onset. But part of the plan initially was them to um, convey the plan as, you know, sort of godlike and people bought into it. Um, you know, the, the, the first foundation bought into it and, you know, considered like, oh, we're going to do whatever we can do. And it seemed like at the, at the end of the, the Bell Rios chapter that they didn't do anything, but maybe the second foundation did it, right? Well, yeah, I did kind of wonder when it, uh, how, when was it, uh, Lathan Devers and Dusan Barr got away so easily. Yeah, uh, twice yeah. <laughs> after causing a terrible commotion, and yeah, they they were able to escape. And you wondered if there was a, as you know, the hand of the second foundation. Yeah, same with like Beta and Torin, right? They got away, easily, yeah, quote unquote, easily. <laughs> In some ways, I I I fought that. I I didn't want the second foundation to be involved because I wanted agency in those people, and especially mm. with Beta, I yeah. I I didn't want Beta to be under the power of anyone. I, I wanted her to be heroic and to be self-directed. I think she was, she wasn't controlled though. I think, I think they said they didn't control her. It's really questionable. Uh, yeah. It's funny because one of the, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the first guests I had on Selden crisis was a philosopher who um, uh, has a, a course that he teaches comparing uh, foundation with Plato's Republic and he knows it inside and out. And he told me beta was controlled. And, mm. and I was ah, really, I didn't think she was <laughs> controlled. And then I looked for the evidence of it when I read it and I didn't find anywhere that said she was controlled. And so I, it, it's kind of implied maybe if you look at it in a certain way that she was controlled, because we know that the second foundation was on Trantor and that's where things were happening. They must have been around, you know, when she was having her ultimate confrontation with with Magnifico the Mule. I seem to remember in Foundation's Edge they talk about her not being controlled, but I can't. Re- I just read it, so like I can't remember exactly. And I kind of sped through it. <laughs> uh, I wasn't analyzing it, but I, I seem to remember a section where I talked about Beta and her not being controlled. I think you're um, you're referring to the part where. Um... Wasn't it the mule himself who admits that or implies that like because she just liked him for who he was, he never felt the need to control her because she was amiable and almost like agreeable towards him without having to be controlled. And that was like his fatal flaw, unless I don't know, there is something else to suggest that that analysis was not accurate. She don't, she wasn't controlled by the mule for sure, but I I think the question is like was she controlled by the second foundation? By the second foundation, oh, or right. like was, okay. was she accounted for and adjusted? I guess you just reminded me that I have a second quote 
Yeah. So let's go with, uh, we're going to start with round number three here and uh, Joel gets the first pick again. And you gave me the, uh, the, the, the lead in for it because it's about, it's by beta and it's after the revelation of the mule's true identity. And after he tells his pitiful story and says, you know, that he, he loved her basically. And that was the problem. And that he says at the end of, of this big long diatribe, he says, in a sense, you have defeated me. And Beta's response is, quote, in a sense, only in a sense, we have defeated you entirely. All your victories outside the foundation count for nothing, since the galaxy is a barbarian vacuum now. The foundation itself is only a minor victory, since it wasn't meant to stop your variety of crisis. It's the second foundation you must beat. The second foundation. And it's the second foundation that will defeat you. Your only choice was to locate it and, and strike before it was prepared. You won't do that now. Every minute from now on, they will be readier for you. At this moment, at this moment, the machinery may have started. You'll know when it strikes you, and your short term of power will be over, and you'll be just another strutting conqueror flashing quickly and meanly across the bloody face of history. End quote. And I didn't include the part right after that, but it's interesting because she says, and now you're going to kill us, basically. You know, and we're happy to die. Torin and I are going to get wiped out because you're the mule. You have all this power. You're going to kill us. And so that kind of explains her bluster. She thinks there's nothing to lose. And she's, she's trying to get under his skin and, you know, have her revenge uh, knowing that she's going to die. And then he lets them off and says, no, I'm not going to kill you. Out of friendship. Or what yeah. he like says, like out of supposed, or like what I consider friendship. Or something yeah, like. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, all, it seemed a little odd, but it, it also has, there's an odd aspect to this because it seems like misplaced bluster. Like really they've defeated him. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a she's going out on a limb there, but uh, she wants to she wants to stick it to him. And it, it, the the other thing I love about that quote, uh, other than just her triumph and her her spirit in that, is it, it sets up the rest of the the trilogy, the the final novel, so well. It kind of you know sets the table for it. Yeah, and interesting. It seems like uh, in in his in the the future history of the series, like she does become, Beta does become a hero because Arcadia writes about her as a heroic figure, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and you know, in, in a lot of ways that she, you know, she did, you know, she's known as the conqueror of the mule <laughs> and, uh, and Arcadia really plays that up in her, in her writing. Yeah. And of all the twists and turns, I would say like that one was my favorite one. Um, I think at times they feel rather like, you know, a, a a rapid fire um series of plots and twists and turns but and then and then i start to like anticipate well i'm sure that there will be a plot twist on this plot twist as well but um <laughs> with, with, with that particular one i i really um enjoyed the way that that panned down because i remember i had to go back and read um the moment right before that where um uh where beta shoots miss um and i like had to read it again to see if i had actually read that correctly <laughs> so um yeah that was one of the more enjoyable moments for me with her coming out on top in that scene it's such a delightful mm -hmm. shock yeah and 
that we haven't talked about the TV show. Uh, <laughs> I'm you know, kind of horrified that they're not going to be able to come close to being a, doing what that did. Even though wow. they've they've had some great twists and turns in the TV show too that are, I wasn't expecting. Uh, but that one, you know, they can't do it the same way. And yeah, I'm I'm just afraid it's going to be disappointing. I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, our next pick is Talia. My third and final quote. I think we discussed this a little bit in episode three, The Merchant Princes. But I'll be diving a little bit more into Hober Mallow and the antagonist, um, Joran Sutt, or Sutt, I think we just called them, the secretary to the mayor of the foundation. Uh, I chose this to demonstrate, again, this circular time in foundation, like something's presented as new and innovative. And then later, it's introduced to the characters and the readers that the brand new radical controversial ideas that we were just introduced to are now stagnant and useless. And there's this tension about whether you're stubborn and holding on to it or letting it go. Um, I think we see this again when the first speaker's student is pointing to their, maybe it's not stated it's a whiteboard. I always pictured it as a whiteboard, but when they're looking at the Selden plan, he's saying like, no, like, but this shows it's wrong. And it's like, no, no, no. You just are stubbornly holding on to the past. The new radical plan is ever changing. So when we are introduced to Sut speaking to Manlio, he's stating, uh, look, Manlio, we're proceeding along a planned history. We know that Harry Selden worked out the historical probabilities of the future. We know that someday we're to rebuild the galactic empire. We know that it will take a thousand years or thereabouts. We know that in the interval, we will face certain definite crises. Now, the first crisis came 50 years after the establishment of the foundation, and the second, 30 years later after that, almost 75 years have gone since then. Any fool can tell a crisis when it arrives. The real service to the state is to detect it in its embryo. And my favorite part of his quote, uh, what's bad for the foundation, uh, a crisis, is good for traditionalists and good for Sut. So he announces almost with glee, we're in the middle of a Selden crisis. I like that too, because I, I feel like that's kind of how in, in the books, like um, those scenes played out in the vault where um, Harry Selden would appear and it would be almost like, like a production. And you just wonder, like, these are all just like pre-recorded like holograms is he even going to be relevant and I think in one of them he like completely missed like miscalculated everything because he hadn't anticipated the mule but um there there was like this this I guess this um almost like this uh theatrical nature to the these presentations that um and and then and then the Selden plan itself like at one point it's like it, it's like described as like this immaterial plan just like hanging over everyone's heads and like like prompting them into like inaction in many cases so um yeah I, I like how that like gets to the heart of that and I like the shift that we're seeing in the foundation from science to religion of science to Finally, what Sut is trying to protest against, which is the power of trade and economic power and, you know, resisting that ultimately leads to him being, I think, Hober, of Hober Mallow as the protagonist. So I can pretty squarely put Sut as the antagonist, but feel free to disagree with that interpretation, too. 
No, I think I think yeah. Uh, yeah, he's seen as the protagonist of history, right? <laughs> like he, he's he's the more mythical figure. Him and in, in, uh, Harden. What's interesting to me is um, I'll just paraphrase the 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 quote that I the other quote ties into this really closely uh, is at the end of um, the Merchant Princes. He talks about kind of uh, how he's just a um, he he knows he's he's kind of like almost like a fictional character. He's almost talking as if he's breaking the fourth wall. Um, mm-hmm. and saying, you know, like, I, you know, obviously Selden has this all planned out. Uh, I don't get to really choose anything, but I'm just going to make the most of it. <laughs> and yeah, you know, it, it kind of, it, he's, he's trapped. He, it's almost like he realizes like Asimov wrote him and, you know, I can't do anything about it. That guy wrote me and hopefully <laughs> you know, he puts me in the right place. Okay. Well, the next pick is Priya's, your last quote. Okay, well, I'm back on back on with the gloominess, <laughs> but it's uh, I, I thought this quote really speaks to um, like everything, all the themes. Um, so this is from Second Foundation. Uh, the quote is: "All the suffering that humanity ever knew can be traced to the one fact that no man in the history of the galaxy, until Harry Seldon, and very few men thereafter, could really understand one another." Every human being lived behind an impenetrable wall of choking mist within which no other but he existed. Occasionally, there were the dim signals from deep within the cavern in which another man was located so that each might grope towards one another. Yet, because they did not know one another and could not understand one another and dared not trust one another and felt from infancy the terrors and insecurity of that ultimate isolation, there was the hunted fear of man for man, the savage rapacity of man toward man. And, I mean, doesn't that just, like, encapsulate everything? Yeah. (laughs) Like, everything that we see in in our present, in our past, throughout the course of human history. It's just this, 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 and and I would actually go so far as to say that it wasn't that it was until, like, I, I don't think Harry Seldon understood, understood it that well either, because this is talking about, like, individuals, mistrust of other individuals, and then how that translates to entire societies, countries, um, feeling divided and not trusting entire masses of other people. Like he could understand this mistrust on the level of the masses, but I think that, you know, he couldn't quite grasp like the anomalies that individuals act out because of these types of mistrusts, like how the mule ended up being this huge anomaly despite being a single human but it was based off of that same mistrust of all of the rest of humanity. And of course, um, this is, uh, I, I have to bring in the fact that like, if you read um, The Dark Forest by Lucy Shin, this kind of describes that very precisely, um, that phenomenon. Um, but I won't spoil it for, for Joel, so yeah. <laughs> I won't get into that. But um, I think like, what we're seeing happening right now, once again, um, can't help but tie it back in, is, again, a manifestation of that mistrust where, you know, and then going back to my previous quote about language and how, you know, I'm very inclined as, you know, a student of language in a sense to see language as our superpower. But of course, it is true that language and 
um, uh, language when misconstrued has all often caused a lot of conflict also throughout history. And it has led to things often becoming worse versus better and um, fostering more of that distrust at times. So, so yeah, I, I think this, this is a quote that kind of resonates um, beyond the book and can be seen as relevant to any moment in history, including the present moment. Have any of you read Nemesis? I have not. It's uh, um, he wrote it a little. Well, actually, I guess he wrote it shortly before he wrote the uh, the the sequels and prequels. So early in the eighties, I think. Is it in and the same universe? It's somewhat in the same universe. It's mm-hmm. um, it, but it's set a- around the time that they develop superluminal flight. Uh, space flight uh, beyond the speed of light, uh, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's it's a really interesting story. But you, um, I thought about this when um, listening to your episode when Priya was uh, complaining about the female characters, because this one actually has um, the the protagonist is a fifteen year old girl, and her mother is really very important. In fact, they're the two of the most important characters in the story. And one of the things that's really interesting about their relationship is that she has kind of a superpower, the, the girl in that she reads body language to an incredibly high level. So she knows when anyone is bullying her and her, her mom hates it because she can't like manipulate her at all. You know, she always knows exactly what her mom is thinking based on her body language. So it's kind of a, a an interesting explanation of a way of, of a mentalic capability that's rational. You know, that's that it's just oh, really good at reading body language, and that gives everything away. It's like another a window into the soul, kind of. Right? You guys need to read Dune. You need to read about mentat <laughs> computation. I can't even keep my mouth closed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I've heard about this and I've read some of, I've read Dune a long, long, long time ago and I don't know if I finished mm-hmm. it. All right. Well, I have the, uh, oh yeah, I forgot. We're still going. The snake, the snake keeps moving. Yeah. The snake keeps moving. Uh, but I had the last one, last pick. And <laughs> I was going to, I really wanted to pick this quote, um, early on about, um, uh, with Lord Dorwin talking about like the found the the earth and everything, but I didn't want to do the accent, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, I'll so do I it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I will instead um, uh, continue on my theme of antagonists, and I think the biggest antagonist or antagonist relationships, and I think the the best person who is the most antagonizing person is Evelyn Miss and his relationship with Ember. Um, Especially because it's con- it's contrasted mm. with with Pritchard earlier, like being so reverent to Ember, and like you know now it's like the in the the course of the foundation, like the the mayors are basically like emperor, the same as the emperor, right? And you have to like not look at them or whatever. Like you have to be really regimented about how you interact with them. But Miss doesn't care about it at all. <laughs> you know, like, like Talia mentioned earlier, he's a scientist. He's important. He doesn't need to have uh, you know his acceptance. He's yeah, he's he's the he's the most important person, and the mayor be damned. So the one of the quotes that I picked was him interacting with Ember, uh, and that says uh, exactly. 
said Miss Dryly. When Selden first established the foundation, he was wise enough to include no psychologists among the scientists placed here, so that the foundation has always worked blindly along the course of historical necessity. In the course of my researches, I have based a good deal upon the hints of the time vault. I'm aware of that, miss. It's a waste of time to repeat. I'm not repeating, blared miss, because I'm, what I'm going to tell you isn't in any of the reports. What do you mean, not in the reports, said Ember stupidly. How could galaxy? Let me tell this my own way, you little offensive creature. Stop putting words in my mouth and questioning every statement or I'll tramp out of here and let everything crumble around you. Remember, you unprintable fool, the foundation will come through because it must. But if I walk out of here now, you won't. Again, I love antagonists. <laughs> and the, like, Miss is just the best. And his treatment of the, the mayor here is just, uh, it's just great to read and just his interaction. So it's too bad that uh, that we lost Miss too early because it would have been great to see him uh, continue on. But we got a lot of good uh, story out of him. I just realized there's an echo there with um, Selden and Ling Chen from the psychohistorians when uh, Chen says, or when uh, Selden says that you're, if you don't cooperate with me, uh, you're going to be dead within a year. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a similar kind of threat, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> I love how the overarching theme of Dan's quotes was the sass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I could always rely on you, Dan, to like kind of lighten the mood after I go with like some like <laughs> very heavy topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but that's I, a huge I, I, part of Asimov's uh, charm too, is the sass and the comedy. He doesn't get enough credit for comedy, but he has some some pretty funny moments. Definitely. And I think like the series got only better. Um, you know, like the first book is really interesting and it's setting up the concepts and it's more about like, it's more of like a thought exercise, you know, but then like when you get into the second and third books, it's really like the, he really dives into these characters and really fleshes them out. And like, you really like understand them. Um, where in the earlier books, I think they kind of all blend together a little bit. Um, but like, like the characters are Miss and the Mule and Arcady and uh, Chan, it's like all these people, like they have like really defined in my mind of like, you know, what they, how they seem. And I, I think that's just a testament to his writing getting better. And I think even in, Foundation's Edge, I think the characters are really defined there, defined well there too. Um, so I'm actually interested um, now that we're done with the um, with the draft section. Uh, we're going to talk to Joel a little bit, um, and you had said that you had read the rest of the series. So, uh, mm -hmm. like I mentioned, I really liked Foundation's Edge, um, but I've heard mixed reviews of the other ones. Uh, so, what's your impression of the of the other ones? Well, I think the one you hear the most mixed review about is the last sequel, um, Foundation and Earth. And hmm. it's, it does, it is different in that it, it seems to drag on to a lot of people. And to me, even it, it seemed to drag on in some aspects. Um, and, but I think it's, it's really interesting why um, there's one protagonist, Golan Travis, who is um, kind of a butthead. He's not, not that, you know, pleasant a character uh and he's the the one you're supposed to relate to right um and and he has some very cringeworthy um sexual experiences so that part i'm just warn, warn you about up front uh, Not really. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah uh but uh, he spends a lot of time bickering with uh this character bliss uh almost like a husband and wife bickering back and forth and, and uh, that's what a lot of people remember from it but mm. 
I've told you all the bad stuff. It also has an epic feel to it of a of an adventure through space and time, uh, because they're the mission is to find Earth, and they it's it's especially wonderful if you've read the robot series, and I really recommend the robot series, the four novels in the robot series. Um, yeah, starting. Yeah, with I think Priya, you, you'd read those, right? Yes, I did read I Robot and um I read it a long time ago. Oh, so not 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 iRobot. Oh, okay. Um after iRobot there the, cuz iRobot's basically a lot of stories short stories compiled into yes. something like a novel. Uh, but the um these are four robot stories I'm talking about start with one called The Caves of Steel and they have two main protagonists, one human and one robot. And they're set up as a Sherlock Holmes style story set in the far distant future. Um, and he, Asimov loved mystery. And he, you know, obviously, as we can see, the second foundation is all you know, about mystery and everything. Mm. Uh, but the, the, this is a very classic, like Sherlock Holmesy style stories. And uh, there's, there's the Caves of Steel. And then the next one is. Um, it goes off planet. The Cage of Steel is on Earth. And then the, the next one is on this uh, spacer world, this uh, where humans have gone into a different, uh, populated other worlds. And one of them is called Solaria. And it's just an amazing place. And then the next one's a, a planet called Aurora. And then the finally, they go back and the robots and empire is the last one. And it's kind of in a, in a several places. But the main two planets, Aurora and Solaria, feature in Foundation and Earth. So you, it's this wonderful uh, progression through the through the galaxy, looking for Earth, and he stumbles upon the, they stumble upon these worlds that you remember if you've read the Robot series, but mm -hmm. they're thirty thousand years later. So they're, oh, really they, they're yeah, yeah they're they're just like ruins of those places, and absolutely fascinating. That's what really captured my attention. So I loved it. I loved the uh, uh, ultimately loved it, knowing that there's things that aren't so fun in them. You know that they're kind of <laughs> annoying. But the then how about the prequels? then the prequels? Yeah, the prequels take you back to fleshing out who was Harry Seldon. And it starts with him as like he's in his twenties, I guess, at the beginning. Um, and it's the only time you meet Cleon. Yeah, you know, it's kind of the this is where some of the things in the show come from, but they're they're very much modified in the show. And there's only one Cleon, um, not a, not three of them. No, no genetic dynasty and all that stuff. Um, and there is a character called Demerzel. Um, and I, I can't spoil it by telling you much about Demerzel because there's a lot of re revelations that happen with, with Demerzel, but the two stories are, are really fascinating because they travel all over Trantor and they get into the different sectors of Trantor and the different kind of microcultures and things that are happening there. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really fun. Um, I, I was just listening. Do you guys listen to Star's End? podcast i i'd listened to like the first episode but like they were like in the middle of me reading and they got a little spoilery so i was like oh uh, yeah 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 <laughs> um 
yeah, they did they did a, a season where they they covered the trilogy as the mm-hmm. books, and then they did their second season was all about the show, and now they're going back and doing the prequels. But mm-hmm. what I found interesting is they they they're really like picking apart the prequels is like the all the finding all the things they that are, that don't make sense and stuff. And I didn't read them that way, and I just love them. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I just found them really fun and and uh, interesting uh, stories. It gets this. The last one gets really sad though, because Harry Seldon gets very close to the end, and it's also when Asimov himself was very close to the end. Hmm. So, yeah, because it, it was published posthumously, right? He, the I believe the like the last. Um, yeah, he he didn't quite finish, and I think the last section was helped out by. His wife, mm. she was a science fiction writer too. Uh, he might have written it all, but it, yeah, it was. It kind of ends in a little bit of a, I don't know. It's not very satisfying, but the main feeling I got from it is this is the story a guy who's dying himself is writing about a guy mm. who's dying. Interesting, and it, it's it's compelling, but definitely sad. So, of the series, do you have like a a, a favorite book or like a favorite part? Oh. Uh, I loved Foundation's Edge. Yeah. Um, I love the trilogy, of course. Uh, out of the four pa- post, I- I'd say my favorite of the whole series is probably Foundation and Empire. Yeah. Um, with the mule. Um, yeah, that was my answer too. Like, it, yeah. it's kind of cheating. Like, the, the mule section spans the two books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's there still parts of all the books that really resonate with me and just make me, you know, just, I just love them. And there's a great, uh, the, the, the way foundation and edge ends is, is so electric. It, it just, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I, was, I was telling uh, Italian Priya that yeah, I should, you should read that. It's a, yeah, I just, I just like read it in like a week and <laughs> it was really good. Like, especially, yeah, especially at the end, how I, I like the tension really ramps up and like, you don't know what's going to happen. Is that, is that the very next book after yeah. this? Okay. I might yeah. read it. Yeah, a, a couple of questions about your podcast. Actually, uh, you know, I I I found it. Um, it's sort of in the middle of us recording this one, and it kind of lined up exactly where we were. <laughs> I was, I don't remember. I think I saw your post on Reddit or something, uh, and you, you had mentioned it, and so I checked it out, and I I listened all the way up all the story episodes that um, I read up to, and then I continued listening to all the story episodes after I finished. Um, so I was wondering like what your, did you have like any inspirations for other, like that your style of, of podcast? Cause it's, it's pretty interesting how you do like dramatic readings and analysis. Yeah. And, um, I would have to say, I, I discovered it as I was doing that. I, I didn't really plan that out. Um, hmm. the, the biggest inspiration is reading the whole series, but hmm. the, in particular, I wrote a Reddit post and I just put this on my blog, uh, crisis.net, uh, a repost of it about, um, a few months before I started the podcast. Uh, it was a, um, a recap basically of the mayors. Uh, and I said it, it, I think the title was, uh, is the mayor's the greatest story in in foundation. And Later, I'd say no, but it's the one that was on my mind right after reading it. And it was like, I was just really uh, into it. Uh, but I, I basically wrote a, 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 the whole post was basically a recap of the mayors. And I just enjoyed writing that so much. 
mm. that I like I want to do this for every section. And then what do, what do I do with it? You know, maybe I should make a podcast out of it. And you know, I I originally intended to only do story episodes, but um then I then I had after the very first episode one I actually I think only the trailer had been released not even the first episode when I got contacted by the guy the the Nathaniel Goldberg who did the the he's the philosophy prof hmm. uh and so I made that a guest episode and then I had this kind of a crisis about uh, after the first season when I finished the first book and getting into the second one because I had set a, t- a we were talking earlier about uh the uh cadence right and i've been told yeah you should do one every you shouldn't change your cadence if you're going to do one every two weeks you should do every episode two weeks apart right and that was easy for the first one because i wrote the first five scripts before i recorded any of them so there wasn't much work to do beyond just recording and i would you know once i had the whole first season written but i got to the end of the first season going into the second one and I didn't have any scripts written out in advance. And I found that that's the that's what takes the longest is mm-hmm. trying to write those scripts. And I found it was impossible to do that in two weeks. So I had to like it took me a month to get the second one. And then I was like, oh, what do I do? Well, you know, between I decided I'm gonna make them a month apart. And I just felt like, oh, but my listeners are waiting eagerly to hear, you know, I'm thinking inflating my importance uh, that they have to, you know, they're going to want to hear something. So I started doing essays and like just and guest episodes and things to fill in that intermediate uh, two weeks. And now I really, I love that part too. I've really enjoyed doing the essays. It certainly doesn't come across that way. I mean, um, as disjointed, like as someone who listens to um some of the non-story episodes on purpose, they do seem to blend pretty seamlessly into the larger project because you're not as bound by plot. You're telling um, more dramatically an experience with the series and with this author. So obviously we can't relate to your cadence issues because we've never missed a date and we're always very rigorous. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Six weeks after we released our last episode. (laughs) more. But that's really good to get some insight into. Well, the the funny thing is, most people don't experience uh, podcasts, you know, the way a podcaster does. They don't do it, you know, time based the same way. Most people like discover a podcast and then go back and binge it, right? Right, right. So, so it doesn't really matter that much what your cadence was for those people, right? Hopefully, (laughs) yeah. I also have to say that um, when listening to your more storytelling-based ones, I, I, I feel like um, I, I, I just kept thinking. I was like, "Oh, like Joel should read more. He should be like the narrator for like audiobooks on Audible because <laughs> I would read more." Because I'm actually very like picky about um, the narrator of a audiobook, like like the reader. I should say the reader. Um, and like, if the reader is bad, like I can't, I can't listen to the audiobook. Then I just have to read it myself. Um, so I, I, I kept thinking like, oh, like you, you'd be like an excellent, um, reader for like a variety of different books. Um, so it, it, it's kind of like 
calming to listen to those storytelling ones where you can just kind of relax and like put on the episode and sort of like, you know, kind of immerse yourself into it. Um, So I I do really like and enjoy that format. And I think you pull it off really well. Oh, thanks. Um, One thing I was going to say about having discovered it as I as I did it uh, is that one, I, I didn't really, I knew I needed to have quotes in there. You know, I needed, because the quotes are what it's all about, right? The dialogue is what it's all about. Um, and I just couldn't read them plainly as like in one voice. I found myself like having to read Harry Seldon different from Ling Chen, you know, when I featured those quotes. And basically I found like, I discovered that I'm a ham, you know, and I want, I, I like <laughs> acting. And uh, yeah, so, I, so I, that became, him. that became the thing that really drove me for a while. It's, it's just, I, oh, what can I, how can this character sound? What can I do? And, and it's all, it's all about just empathizing with them and like trying to figure out where they're coming from, you know, what's in their head. And that kind of defines their voice. It's like a really powerful tool because um, I I remember when I um, listened to the audiobook of uh, the recent um, Andy Weir book, uh, Project Hail Mary, um, the reader d- does that book like, uh, like uh, it, it, he voice acts that book basically. And it has so much more of an impact when it's done that way. So that is definitely very enjoyable. Well, I wanted to ask about what you said just now, Joel, that the dialogue is what it's really about. And that's why you choose to include quotes. I have seen a few people who have the, um, they have the opinion that Asimov really only shines in his works that are not too dependent on characters having a lot of dialogue, because that's what a lot of his short stories are about. And I was curious to hear your take on whether someone can be an Asimov fan without having you know, read or having any kind of a relationship with this series in particular with the foundation. Hmm. I don't know. It's, it's just, um, you, you either, I, I think where, why he's so into dialogue is because of his love for mystery. And like mm-hmm. that, and if you think about Sherlock Holmes or something, it's all, there's a lot of dialogue. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's all revealed in dialogue. Uh, the clues are revealed there, and it's how he frames a story. And so, if you're if you love that kind of story, you know, then you're going to love Asimov. And especially if you have an imagination that wants to contemplate thousands of years in the future, and you know, <laughs> the whole span of the galaxy, and things like that. And so. Joel was asking a bit earlier about our favorite episodes of the podcast. And I would say my favorite part uh, of, of your show was when you did the, um, the story of, or, or the part when the, the, the mule takes over the foundation and like, you really, and like, you can really feel the tension. Uh, and like, I think you had like music behind it. And like, it, it was, it's just like a really, um, a really good way to tell that story and to like really build up that tension. I, I really like that part. Well, I have to give a shout out to my son, Jeremy. Uh, mm-hmm. who is at, um, a whiz with uh, sound editing. And he had the first five book, the first five stories in the season one, I didn't include him. I just did it all myself. And oh, starting with the general, I realized I really need some sound design. I really could have used <laughs> some sound design in, in uh, like, especially in the merchant princes for that, uh, the trial scene, you know, and all that stuff. And it, 
I felt like it really was missing that. And I pulled him in and he, he loved it and he, he did really good work. And that was one of the things that he really got into was doing the, uh, uh, the fall of the foundation and setting up all that. He says that he's, he, he screwed it up and he could have done a bunch better job because he's still learning what he was doing. Oh, he, true artist. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's <laughs> more of great. a, he's a video editor and he's doing really good work mm. as a video editor. Now um, I, He's almost like out of my, I can't afford him anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> Especially I don't pay him anything and it's like, no, I can't do that, dad. I got to, I have work to do. Uh, you know, <laughs> he's delayed he episodes because uh... I, I, I will wait until he's re- available before I'll, I'll finish an episode. Mm. You said you read the entire series. How, how did you like the the entire series? As he's like an Eisenhower fan now? Oh, absolutely. He, he just, yeah. he ate it up. And that was wonderful to see, you know, and and share. That's a great bonding experience to to both read Foundation together. Yeah, that's, that's and be able great. to talk about it. You know, we still talk about it, and just you know, I talked to him about this episode and um, what quotes I had selected, and we had a nice conversation about that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, well, we're about an hour and a half in, so and it's late on the East Coast, so I will let you guys go. But uh, thank you very much, Joel, for joining us. Really appreciate your your insights, and again, recommend all of our listeners to listen to Southern Crisis podcast. Um, really great listen, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll be talking to everyone again soon. Hopefully, about our next project. Like I said before, we are still deciding what we're going to be doing, but we will uh, be in contact. Okay. Um, but. Yeah, but Joel, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it was great to have you on. I'm so happy that you in- invited me on. It was a lot of fun. Aw, thanks, Joel. Yeah, this <laughs> was a lot of fun. Okay, well, please uh, check out Rehydrate.space for uh, all of our episodes, reading lists, and all the other stuff we put on there. And if you want to contact us, please email us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at RehydratePod. Thanks. <laughs>